Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Pick up there. Thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Tom Spore. I'd like to welcome you to our event building an army ready for great power competition. Well, the army reports that they're aggressively preparing for great power competition by moving beyond incremental change and making transformational changes across the entire force. Notably, the army has announced people as their number one priority, putting resources towards efforts that take care of people and transform how they manage talent. This transformation also includes new doctrine, organizations, new ways to train, modernize equipment, and how the Army competes around the world. These changes are designed to help ensure the Army maintains strength for great power competition, which is on the horizon. As the Army moves into 2021, however, storm clouds are on the horizon. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley has recently predicted a lot of bloodletting as the Army tries to fund all the necessary programs, including sea power in a constrained funding environment. A new administration with undoubtedly different priorities has been in office now for about a month and the recruiting environment remains difficult. Today, we're honored to have General James McConville, the 40th Chief of Staff of the Army, join us to help understand the direction the Army is heading and what he sees as the major challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. We'll start off with me asking General McConville a couple of questions and then we're gonna turn to you, the audience, for yours. I remind you that you can enter your questions at the question tab on the GoToWebinar menu. And then I direct them to me and I'll, I'll put them right to General McConville. So we've got a great program. Let's drive on. At this time, I'd like to invite our guest, General McConville, to join us. Thank you, General McConville. We see you. By means of introduction, General McConville assumed duties as the 40th Chief of Staff on August 9th, 2019 after serving as the vice chief of staff. He's a proud native of Quincy, Massachusetts and a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and also holds a Master of Science in Aerospace Engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology. Among his many notable assignments, General McConville commanded the storied 101st Airborne Division in combat in Afghanistan and the 4th Brigade 1st Cavalry Division during Operation Iraqi Freedom. His key staff assignments include Army Deputy Chief of Staff G1 and the Chief of Army Legislative Liaison. So, General McConville, sir, thanks for being here. I'm going to go right into this first question. Normally, in March and April, the service chiefs are summoned to testify before Congress on the posture of their service. Last year's pandemic kind of disrupted those hearings. The Senate hearing for the Army was a paper hearing, whatever that is, and the and the House managed to get theirs in before everything closed down in early March. Was hoping you could preview for us what you think the major themes will be that you will share with Congress about this, the Army this coming year. Well, thanks, Tom, and it's great to be with be, be here today. And as you mentioned, uh, really three major themes that we will be sharing. And, and number one theme is people. And in the Army, people are our greatest strength. It's our most important weapon system and we are investing in our people right up front. And, and number two is really making sure that we're ready for today. We're not going to send any soldier into combat 
that is not ready, that's not highly trained, disciplined, and fit. And we're doing a lot of things in the readiness area to make sure that we have forward posture. We're building new organizations uh, from security force assistance brigades to the multi-domain task force that's going to allow us to compete uh, in this great power uh, environment. And, and again, one thing I'd like to add, great power competition does not have to be great power conflict. And the way we avoid that is really through strength, Pete through strength. And not only of our military, not only of our army, but also the strength of our allies and partners. And that's why our, our global posture is so important. And third thing, which I think is absolutely critical, is we must transform the army now. Every 40 years, I would argue or suggest the army transforms. It did it in 1940. It did it when I came in in, in the army in 1980. Now we're in 2020, and we must transform the army. And that's our six modernization uh, priorities, but it's also new doctrine. It's new organizations. It's new ways that we're going to train, and it's a 21st century talent management system. Thank you, General. Excellent. So from day one, I have heard you say that people are your number one priority. Uh, you and I came up in an army not that long ago where the mantra was mission first, people always. And I know that's a change. And I'm interested on in how you explain that change to soldiers in the Army. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I take a look at our Army and, you know, really for the, the last uh, 19 years, uh, we've been heavily engaged uh, in, in combat, uh, specifically in, in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And we've asked a lot um, out of our, our people. And when I say people, I'm not talking just about soldiers. I'm certainly talking about soldiers. But I'm talking about soldiers from all three components, um, from the regular army, but our guard and reserve are doing incredible things in the United States. They're also doing incredible things around the world. And we have these great department of the army civilians who work tirelessly uh, to make the army what it is. And then I take a look at our families who enable uh, our soldiers to continue to deploy and to continue to, to do what they need to do. And finally, we don't want to forget our soldiers for life our retirees and veterans who are all part of, of this, this great army um, that, that we need. And when I look at it, I believe we get the people right. We get the right people in the right place. And we get rid of those corrosives that are, affect our people, whether it's sexual harassment, sexual assault, whether it's racism or extremism. We want to do everything we can to prevent suicides in the force. If we get the force right, everything else follows Winning matters in the Army, and we win through our people, and that's why people are our number one priority. Excellent. So I know you and the Army have been working on your fiscal year 2022 budget submission for, I want to say, at least a year and a half. It's probably been, gone through the ringer, gone through a lot of things. I also know the new administration is uh, taking some weeks, maybe some months, I'm not sure, to look at it. Uh, I know you can't talk about it either. and. Uh, as a former chief of Army legislative liaison, you know that better than I do. But I'm interested from what you've seen so far, from what you know, what you can see around the edges. Are you happy with where you're at, or are you going to be able to continue uh, Army transformation and Army modernization? Yeah, I think what we've done in the Army is we we have a um, a good understanding of what our priorities are. You know, people, readiness, and, and modernization, and within each of those areas. Uh, we know 
um, where the trades are. And you know, we've already made some tremendous trades, especially uh, in, in the modernization uh, areas. You know, we moved billions of dollars into our six modern, modernization priorities, our 31 plus four systems. And we are moving out very, very quickly. We've moved from an industrial age acquisition process to a, a much more 21st century uh, process that we're working very well with the industry. We're, we're starting to get systems failed in three, four, five years, which you know in the past was a 15-year program, and we're starting to see those things happen. And so we are aggressively moving out out uh, uh, in, in in getting after these systems. And what we have to show that every dollar that Congress gives us, we're going to use appropriately. Every person counts. Every dollar counts. Um, we're working very closely with industry. They're investing uh, in, in the priorities. We've moved to a, uh, a process where we come up with characteristics, vice requirements. That allows industry to be innovative and come up with ideas we may not even thought about uh, and, and get to uh, a prototype very, very quickly. So I am pleased where we're going. We know that you know, there may be some tough decisions, but we're prepared to make those decisions uh, as we move forward. Just one other thing for programs, and I, I, I talk routinely to industry, uh, it, if, if programs are not on cost, performance, and schedule, it's much easier to make those tough decisions. So we're asking everyone to realize the importance of failing those systems and, and meeting the requirements that they said they could do. Excellent. So let me, let me stay on that uh, topic just for a minute here. And the Army has talked for over a year, I think, I can't remember exactly, about their 31 plus four signature systems. If you could explain, you know, briefly the difference between the 31 and the four. But to my knowledge, none of these programs has really um, crashed yet. You know, you've not had like a program termination. You're not down to um, 29 signature systems or 26 or something like that. They're all kind of, it's seemingly clicking along. But I'm, I'm curious, in your opinion, is the Army intellectually prepared to kind of if you will, cut sling on one of these programs if you don't see it heading in the right direction. Yeah, on, on the 31, I mean, it starts from the, I'll start with the six modernization uh, priorities, and, and then we develop the 31 systems. But the, the plus four is really how we're pursuing pursuing hypersonics, uh, which is under General Neil Thurgood, um, how we're pursuing mid-range capability, the ability uh, to sink ships, and then also how we're looking at uh, a laser capability and and a high powered microwave or directed energy type capability. So those are the kind of the four that sit there. Um, but what we've done is we've done a lot of uh, simulation, a, a lot of uh, experimentation uh, with the systems that we have. And the way we're developing them, you know, it's it's not like maybe we did in the past where we'd go years, invest billions of dollars and get to the end of our program, we're supposed to field it and go, well, what happened? We didn't have what we wanted. So we're taking a different approach. We saw that with the optionally manned fighting vehicle. We, 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 we stepped out, we took a pause, we stepped back and, and we came out with the characteristics that we were looking for in the system. So what's different now than in previously is in the past, we'd spent a lot of time writing requirement, maybe five years to get the requirement exactly right that was very prescriptive, and then we'd go into the acquisition and, and, and competition phase. Now what we do is we come out to industry and we say, hey, we want something that has these basic characteristics. And 
traditional industry and non-traditional industry can come back and they can give us an ideas on a white paper and we may get a hundred um, uh, inputs from industry and then out of that maybe we pick 10. Hey, we think these have potential. We give them a little money. We say, hey, come back with a design and they come back with design. We update the characteristics based on what they've shown us and maybe down select a little more to maybe five and they come back with a detailed design and we can actually start to look at that uh, in the computer, get a much better idea of some good ideas that we want to keep, and then move to a prototyping um, capability and, and, and maybe down select the two or three that are going to actually prototype. And when they get in the prototype, we can put soldiers on those prototypes and work with the industry actually to get to a set of requirements that we know that's obtainium, or, or, attainable, and we can also make sure that we put a requirement in place. We know they can do it, and we don't waste a lot of money in in the process and this actually moves very very quickly so that is what i i think the difference is is how we're doing things in the future but at the same time i'm i'm telling everybody that every dollar counts and if we're going to fill the system it, it's success in what winning looks like is getting into the hands of soldiers and we must do that and we must transform the army now excellent so uh, i want to shift a little bit over to recruiting um article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was today, even talked about the impact that the pandemic has had on recruiting, that typically in times of economic trouble, people move to the military. I'm, I'm wondering if you're seeing that now, I'm wondering how difficult the recruiting environment is and whether you anticipate uh, meeting your goals. I know it's early in the fiscal year, but how, how are things looking for 2021? Well, first of all, I, I talk a little about 2020, which was really a very challenging year for recruiters. They made mission. Uh, we had historical highs for retention, uh, which we were very, very happy with. That means we have experienced soldiers and non-commissioned officers that believe in what they're seeing and they want to stay. Uh, we learned a lot in 2020 uh, about virtual recruiting. We've really never done that before. It, it's, we've kind of been doing industrial age uh, recruiting where our recruiters go out to high schools and they have to meet with people and they aggressively um work to recruit soldiers into the army. And what we've learned was the best way to do it is almost like a, a hybrid, some virtual, some meeting. And we actually had to do that because we paused on recruiting for about a month, month and a half while COVID was, was really raging through the country. But we figured out how to do that. And we made a mission last year. And quite frankly, we, we overproduced and we actually pushed people into this year. We're doing very, very well this year. And again, our retention is is very very high and and so um we're pretty comfortable you know we, we never want to be completely comfortable uh but we're very pleased uh that there's extraordinary young men and women that are still willing to raise their right hand uh and come in the military and we're very very pleased uh that so many of our soldiers and our non-commissioned officers want to stay in the army excellent so a lot of good questions are coming in i'm going to turn to them after this final one for me, and that is, um, this got to do with the Indo-Pacific. And as you know, General Berger, your counterpart on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Commandant of the Marine Corps has chosen to take the Marine Corps and in, in my view, I think in others as well, narrowly focus it on the Indo-Pacific, divesting himself of armor, artillery, other capabilities that don't appear to have much utility uh, anyplace else except uh, the uh, Indo-Pacific. It strikes me that the Army doesn't really have that option, that you can't take your Army and focus it on one particular theater or one particular future war. 
Um, but then there's some that say the Army isn't terribly relevant in the Indo-Pacific. I was hoping you could talk about both sides of that argument. Yeah, let me just, uh, first of all, uh, General Berger is a great officer, um, uh, just a, a, a really forward thinker, and, and he's doing some incredible uh, things with the Marine Corps, and, and, and we're, you know, along with the rest of the chiefs. So we're working very, very closely. Uh, General Brown and, and I have signed an agreement for the Joint All-Domain Command and Control capability that the work that, working very closely uh, with the Navy, and so there's a lot of good teamwork going on between the chiefs and you know whatever we we produce is really a, as a joint force and what i've learned and, and again I've, as a chief we're spending a lot more time uh in the indo-pacific and and we think that is is very very important some of the units that we're building our security force assistance brigades are incredibly high demand because they can go out there and work with our allies and partners uh they have a very small signature uh, but they can really increase the capabilities and capacities of those units. We've had countries come from the Indo-Pacific. We just had, uh, we had Thailand um, and Indonesia. They came through our Joint Readiness Training Center. We had Korea come through uh, the National Training Center. Um, we're doing exercises with, with our partners in the region. And, you know, it's it certainly, when you talk about the Indo-Pacific, it's it certainly, um, a, a, a very important maritime environment. But the thing I've learned is most of uh, the senior leaders in the countries that we want to deal with are army officers. And most of um, the people in that, in that region li live in the, in the land. So there's, there's definitely a reason for the, for the army uh, to be there. The multi-domain task forces with long range precision fires and some of the capabilities uh, that we provide with long range effects fit very, very well into um, Admiral Davidson's uh, concept of how he wants to compete. And, you know, what we're really all looking for is how do we compete without getting into a crisis or out getting into a conflict? And I would argue you do that um, through strength and the strength of our, our joint force, the strength of our army, but more importantly, the strength in, of, of our allies and partners. And we're working very, very closely with them to develop their capabilities and capacities. And, and so I, I think there's a lot of work for everybody out in the Indo-Pacific. Super, thank you very much. I'm gonna to go to some questions that we've gotten through the portal. And again, keep sending them people. Uh, this one's from Tony Capacio at Bloomberg. Tony is, you just talked about the multi-domain task force in the Pacific. Tony's interested, is it operational? Does it have a commander, uh, a location? And have the allies agreed to where, wherever that location is? Yeah, well, right now we're we're, we're building uh, the multi-domain task force. It's stationed at, at Joint Base Lewis McCord. Um, uh, Brigadier General Jim Eisenhower is the uh, overall uh, developer of that organization. And what that organization does is it has a lot of capabilities within it. You know, we I like to say it it does two major things. One, it does long-range precision effects. And two, it does long-range precision fires. So we think about the long-range precision effects. What we're looking at is the, the core of that organization, and we always got to have an acronym, it's I2Qs, but I'll come back and, you know, which means there's a battalion that does intelligence, it does information operations, it does cyber, it does electronic warfare, and it does space. And all those uh, capabilities can be used to get precision effects 
below the level of armed conflict. But it also has the capability as we develop our long range uh, precision fires, whether it's hypersonics or it's mid range capability or it's the prison strike missile, uh, to command and control those assets. And those assets have the ability uh, to penetrate, if required, an adversary's anti axis air denial capabilities. And through that, you get deterrence. And so we are building them. Uh, they're coming on board as we speak. Uh, each one will be modified for the different type of theaters uh, that we have. Uh, but we can actually plug into those organizations different capabilities as required by the mission. Super. So uh, next question is from Sydney Freeberg at Breaking Defense. And as you would expect, Sydney never asks easy questions. And this one is, uh, is the Army willing to sacrifice end strength to preserve your readiness and modernization aspirations? And, you know, Sydney's follow-on question is, if you try and balance them all, if you try and keep them all, does the Army just salami slice itself to death? Well, that, that's what we're taking a, a hard look at. I, you know, I, I think when I, I look at the uh, demands uh, for the Army, uh, and we've done studies, uh, you know, we, we would like a, a much bigger Army. But what I have to do at, 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 at my level is say, you know, what can we actually afford? And we all get, uh, as, as Sydney knows very well, a, a top line. And so as we go after, every program counts. And, and, and you know, and, and people say, well, you can't have everything. Uh, but what you can't afford to do is waste one dollar. And we put a lot of processes in place uh, to make sure that we can modernize the Army. And we put a lot of processes in place to make sure that as we take a look at how we use our dollars when it comes to things like de-obligations. And, and it, it's interesting as you really get after and follow every single dollar to make sure you know where it's going. Also working very closely with with industry. So they're investing. Uh, along with us, and, and we've seen them do that very, very well, where they've invested a lot of their own money in the research and development and, and, and gotten very good results based on the, the characteristics uh, that we've given them. But we're going to every single area and taking a look at where we can find the money to modernize them. I, I believe we absolutely must do that. Uh, at, at the same time, the end strength we have is, 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 is what we need to keep. And we got to make sure that every one of those soldiers that we send into harm's way is trained. So we've got to maintain the readiness also. Thank you. So a great question here from Maureen Snook, who is a daughter of a West Pointer and mother of uh, two Army officers. And so, Maureen, I want to thank you for that. But Maureen asks, how do we alert our fellow citizens to the need for a transformed Army and the money and the necessary money and effort to meet that goal? Well, that's that's why we have these discussions. And I've studied former chiefs of staff, you know, and you always, you know, you, you, we talk about no more task force Smiths, no more, you know, losses at, at first battle. And and these are tough decisions for for people to make because there's a lot of um, challenges or requirements on people's plates uh, where we're going to spend the, the, the money of the nation. Uh, but what we have to do is I believe we exist in an era of great power competition. And, you know, and, and that great power competition is with, with China and it's with Russia. They are modernizing their forces. Um, and I believe that the way we keep the peace, which is what everybody wants, is through strength. And if I've studied history, 
when the military has not been strong and the army has not been strong, that is when most likely when people are going to try to take advantage of the situation. And that's when you end up in wars and that's when you end up having challenges in first battles. We never want that to happen. And we as uh, chiefs have got to make the argument and hopefully those arguments, um, you know, um, people, people believe in what we're trying to tell them. And, you know, we, we can afford the defense of this nation. Thank you. Next question comes from Jerry, Jeremy Martin. And Jeremy's asking about how important is speed and increased range army operations in the indo-pacific and you know when he when he talks about those things i think i think to the uh the future long-range assault uh, helicopter that you guys are developing with a I, uh, I know it's not a requirement but a characteristic of a vastly increased range and speed uh, over the blackhawk yeah i i think that's a great question i think the the future is is all about range and speed and so when i talk about range you know, certainly in our vehicles, certainly in, in uh, our aircraft, I don't even call them helicopters anymore because the, the, the things that we're developing, the aircraft that we're developing are not helicopters because you really can't get to the, the speed and range we want with a typical helicopter because of aerodynamics. So we're very pleased with what industry is coming up with. There's, there's two different configurations. They're both cutting edge. They both uh, provides some very innovative techniques to get after the speed we need, whether it's in the Pacific or other places around the world in that range. But if you also take a look at long-range precision fires, and you take a look at you know what we've done already with hypersonics, and you take a look at uh, the capability with mid mid-range uh, uh, fires that we're going to have or prison strike missiles, the, the, we're going to be able to reach out and and touch those who wish us harm if required in a way that we've never done before. The other thing I mentioned about speed, it's just not the speed of the aircraft or the vehicles or the long-range precision fires. What it really is, is the speed of tying sensors to artificial intelligence to the right shooters is where you get the lethality that we're after. We have a project called Project Convergence, this is what it's all about. It ties the whole joint force together and we can quickly move data from one system or sensor to another system and then make sure we have the right shooter that can quickly engage targets. We just ran um, a uh, experiment or, or a campaign of learning out at Yuma. We called it um, um, Project Convergence 20. We're gonna do one in 21, uh, but we're taking times from know, 15 to 20 minutes and getting that down to 15 to 20 seconds. And so the speed is in how fast you can move data from one sensor to a to another shooter in the right shooter very, very quickly. And we see that lethality and that speed as is the future of how we're going to fight. Excellent. General, we've got a couple of questions about, from people that are interested in, in Russia, one from Sydney Freeberg talking about we've talked a lot about the Indo-Pacific, but you still have this very different and very more traditional role in Europe to deter Russia. And then Maureen Snook wants to talk about Russia and maybe even Arctic threats and how that, well, I guess whether or not that presents an army, a challenge to the army to kind of address both those threats simultaneously. Yeah, let me talk, I'll, I'll go to Europe, then we'll go to the Arctic. Uh, you know, we, we got a very strong relationship uh, with, you know, military to military, uh, with NATO, um, we just stood up a, a really uh, a four-star command under 
uh, General Chris Cavoli, uh, U.S. Army, Europe, Africa. That's given us the capability to really tie together uh, that region in a way that we haven't been able to do before. We just stood up our fifth corps, and the fifth corps is focused on Europe. So we've got the capability uh, to have the uh, the right level of leadership. Because as we take a look at the future, um, cores are going to be a lot more critical than we've seen in the past. You know, as as we looked at how the army would fight. I'd say over the last 20 years, we went to a brigade combat team model. That was kind of the, the building block. But as we start to look at um, conducting multi-domain operations, you need to have much higher headquarters that can do the coordination um, with the other services and, and, and with the other COCOMs. I mean, if you're going to shoot a hypersonic missile, you're not only going through the air, you're going through space and you're getting pretty close to that. So and you, you're going through multiple COCOMs. So that is not going to be done at a at a brigade commander level. You're going to have to have the coordination uh, in place. So we're starting to put that together. Uh, but we are look, working very, very closely um, with our partners and allies uh, in Europe uh, on the eastern side, whether it's Poland or Romania, uh, very, very close relationships uh, and, and training going on. Uh, we're doing a, a warfighter. Uh, uh, this this uh, spring, both with a, a French division and a, a, a UK division. So we, we are working very, very closely uh, with our allies and partners in Europe. And I think we need to do that because there is a lot of competition going on, on inside Europe and, and, and with Russia. And again, it's peace through strength. It's, it's our military, our joint force, but also more importantly, the relationship with our allies and partners. And for the Arctic, um, you know, we talked a little about that. We have um, a, a Arctic strategy for the Army. Many of the services have done that. We're recognizing uh, the importance of the Arctic and as others are, and we are competing in the Arctic. And, and we're starting to take a look at in, in, in the Army is, you know, we have units in Alaska, but not really equipped to the level we want. So we have the Arctic capability we want. We're, we're certainly taking a look at that. We're taking a look at the headquarters there. Is it an operational headquarters? Right now, it's more an administrative headquarters. We see value in looking at whether that should be an operational headquarters. And also, as we develop our multi-domain task forces that have the ability uh, with long-range precision fires and in the future could um, provide anti-access air denial capabilities, uh, what is their role uh, in, in the Arctic and how can we uh, position those forces? So all those things are going on in the Army right now. All those things are important. And, and, and quite frankly, that's why the transformation of the Army becomes with a sense of urgency. Thank you. A couple of questions, General, about the joint all-demand command and control system or strategy. I think it's more of a strategy than a system, or JADC2, as, as some people refer to it. One person, Patrick Tucker, asked, um, are you comfortable with where that's heading? Uh, is there a danger that the Air Force is going to potentially push their data standards on everybody else. And just a sense, uh, people are curious about whether you're comfortable with where the joint staff is heading on that project. Yeah, I am. I, I just, I, I mentioned it earlier, but um, uh, General CQ Brown and myself, Chief of Staff of the Air Force, we actually signed an agreement, um, you know, to get after those type things, to make sure that, you know, as we bring the joint force together, we're all going in in the same direction, and you know we all share the same vision. We all want to be able to pass data. We we understand the importance. Of it. One thing we did add uh, to the agreement was a C, uh, 
And so not only is it a joint all domain command and control, it's a combined joint all domain because as I talk about to our allies and partners uh, throughout the world, and especially in our priority areas, they do not want to be left behind. So as we build this system, you know, we want them to be part of it and they want to be part of it. Uh, but what it's really coming down is recognizing uh, that each service has perspective uh, from where they sit. You know, when we talk about numbers of, you know, if you're the Air Force um, chief of staff, you're worried about a couple thousand planes. We're worried about a million people on the ground. So, you know, the scale and complexity of that may drive us to different solutions. So that's why we're getting together. We've stood up uh, uh, a, what we call it, we have a, you know, a, a, a capability up at Aberdeen where we can test systems out. You know, so we actually have a joint, uh, we got an acronym for it, I should know what it means. But anyways, what it, what it does, is it allows us to take all these different systems and check them uh, before we actually go out to a place like Yuma or go out to uh, a, 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 a one of the training areas. But we are learning how to um, communicate with all our systems so we get the value of convergence. And I think the, the joint all-domain command control system is really important to making that happen. Thank you. A question or two about uh, roles and missions between the services. Uh, one individual asked, you know, that has been controversial in the last year or so about the Army's new capabilities that you're going to have to conduct long-range precision strikes. Um, there's also been a concern expressed that in times of resource constraints in the Pentagon, uh, in, in some cases in the past, uh, the services have kind of started to covet what other people have and they've kind of, there's been a little fratricide, if you will, or even cannibalism or something like that. I'm, I'm wondering if you're seeing, because we're on, we could be on the edge of one of those periods where resources become very scant, um, whether you're seeing that, whether that's going to provoke a roles and missions discussion over. Yeah, I, I think you know, you know, some people ask on, on the long-range precision strikes, why, why, why do you have a, a, a land option? And I, I think what we we have is really twofold. As we look at our competitors, uh, they all have the, the ability to do long-range precision strikes, and they all have the ability to do uh, from the ground anti-ship uh, capabilities operations. And so uh, we're just rounding out. Uh, the, the portfolio of a ground force. But what it also does is, you know, in, in some ways you think about, you know, we, if you take a look at the concept of multi-domain uh, operations and how we discuss we're going to fight in the future, we are going to fight as a joint force. And we can go back and take lessons from how we've done things before. We don't want to fight the last war. We want to win the next one, you know. But you go back to... Um, Desert Storm. And there was a penetration mission done to begin Desert Storm. It was done by Apache helicopters with then Lieutenant Colonel Cody opening up a, a gap um, in the, um, the Iraqi integrated air and missile defense system that allowed the air war to go forward. I would never do that today. And, you know, as, as far as, you know, the way they did it in the past, but, you know, I could see with long range precision fires, how you would suppress uh, air defense with the capabilities that we're going to bring that would allow our joint partners either to get in closer or to get through that system. So I see great value in that at a, a, a very limited cost. I can see the Army 
enabling either maritime or air maneuver in some of these anti-axis area denial capabilities. Again, what we want to do is provide the combatant commanders uh, options in our competitors or adversaries dilemmas or things that they have to deal with. Uh, I think your staff mentioned to me that you were coming, you had a, a COVID update today with uh, Secretary of Defense Austin. And I know in the last 48 hours or so, there's been some announcements that the military was deploying active duty forces to help with COVID uh, vaccinations. I heard about a 222 person team and a, a smaller one. I have to believe the Army is right in the midst of that because we, I think the Army has most of the medical assets in the Department of Defense. Can you talk to a, you know, what you guys are doing, and then B, is there an impact on readiness, on military readiness when you take these people out of their formations? Yeah, let me let me take on the, you know, at least from the philosophically, from where at least how I look at it. You know, the you know the army exists to protect the nation, you know, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And right now we have this domestic enemy, this invisible enemy called COVID. And and when you look at the casualties that our country has taken, you know well in excess of what we took, uh, you know, from World War II. So from where I sit is we all should do whatever we can to defeat this virus. And so we've been doing that for the last year, whether it's in our medical research development command, you know, we've had a lot to do with, you know, getting the vaccinations along the way. We've had a lot to do with helping improve testing. We've had a lot to do uh, with therapeutics. We got some great scientists and some great logisticians that have been helping uh, make that happen. We stood up these urban augmentation medical task forces that have been, you know, set up alternate healthcare facilities, but they've also gone into the the hospitals at the toughest times into New York City, into New Jersey, into Washington. You can name it. We've we've been there, and now most recently is you know the the nation has asked us and 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 to help out with the vaccinations. And as you said, we just sent our first team, 222 from. Uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. We have another one standing by from uh, at Fort Campbell with 101st, and we sent some smaller teams out there. And we've got about 25,000 National Guard soldiers that are doing this right now in our reserves. So, that, so that the the army is is committed to making this happen. And it could affect readiness. Sure, those units that are that are doing this, they're not training the way they need to. But but we got to defeat this 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 enemy. I think it's the right thing to do for the nation. And the sooner we defeat it, the, the, the better off we're going to be and, and, and we can get on to the to the other things. So I stand firmly be behind uh, the decision for us to, to get after this. And, and we are advising, you know, certain units uh, if it is if it has a, a big impact uh, on their readiness. But right now we, we are comfortable of where we're at. Excellent. Yeah. And, you know, it's ironic to me because there's been discussion in the media about, hey, uh, the military is not much use against this current threat. We should relook our priorities as a country, de-emphasize the military and in favor of you know threats like the pandemic. And when you look at it, the military has been a key enabler of the, the entire country's response to the COVID epidemic. So it really, I think people don't understand how much uh, the military and the army have contributed to fighting uh, the COVID. So thank you for that. Um, Bill Tice asks, can you, can you comment on future plans for the Patriot system and, and its new radar, I guess called the LATAMDIDS and its its future plans, comments on that? Well, I, I, I can just tell you that, you know, our um, air and missile defense uh, is in tremendous demand uh, around 
the globe. And we're always looking for um, more efficient, innovative ways um, to tie our senses um, and, and more capabilities. So LTAMs and, you know, and again, we're not getting in front of decisions to be made, but we're looking for uh, increased capability to sense. And that's what the radars do. And then even within the Patriots, the ability uh, to protect our forces from uh, theater ballistic missiles or or uh, high end type unmanned aerial systems or or enemy air, all those uh, we are concerned about. We have an obligation to protect our our soldiers, and 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 that is what we're going to do. But more importantly, what we're looking for is innovative ways uh, to tie in radars, call them sensors, so you don't have just one radar for one one system. They can pick it up, and then it becomes a question of uh, what is the actual uh, arrow that you want to use based on the system that is coming in. You know, we, we see the future uh, uh, concern. You know, you, you start looking at unmanned aerial systems. You know, you want to make sure you have a value trade-off. You don't want to be shooting at a, a multi-million dollar missile at a hundred thousand dollar UAS, or you have to learn to deal with swarms of smaller unmanned aerial systems. And there's going to be a whole bunch of things we have to look at the future. So what I can say is you know, there's a bright future for for air and missile defense, um, and but it'll be across uh, a, a spectrum um, that will deal with uh, lots of problems. But the, at the end of the day, it's all about project convergence. Uh, when we have multiple sensors coming to an integrated air and missile defense battle command system that can choose the right weapon to go ahead and provide the right effects to defeat that system. Thank you, sir. So. Changing gears, a uh, couple of questions about extremism in the military, in the Army in particular. I know Secretary of Defense has announced a stand down uh, in the next 60 days or so. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, whether that constitutes a significant um, problem for the United States Army. I, I think, well, first of all, there's no room for extremism of any type uh, in the United States Army. There's just no room. You know, just that's that's just where we stand. And if you're an extremist, you need to go somewhere else. We don't need you uh, in, in the United States Army. And as far as are, are there you know, extremists or people, you know, we like to think there's not many, but we, 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 we want to make sure um, when I look at those type of uh, corrosive issues, and, and again, I, I've identified a couple. We've been talking about this for about 18 months in the United States Army, sexual harassment, sexual assault. Um, uh, racism, extremism. These are corrosive issues that hurt our soldiers and they break trust with the American people and we cannot have them in our army. And quite frankly, um, if you're one of the, those that are doing these type things, you are not authorized to do that in our army. You're not authorized to bring discredit to our army and, and taint the incredible uh, heroism of those who've gone before us and legacy of those who've gone before us. You have an obligation when you put on this uniform to live up to the legacy of those who've gone before us. And, and I think that is a sacred obligation. We are very, very blessed that we uh, are a very well respected institution in the United States, but we should not take that for granted. We need to earn the trust of the American people every single day. And if we have these cor corrosive behaviors in our army, we will lose that trust. Thank you, sir. So we're we're at the end of our allotted time here. I'll, I'll throw it to you for any closing comments, perhaps on uh, 
challenges, problems you see ahead, or opportunities. Thank you. No, I just I just want to you know first of all I want to thank our our soldiers. Um, you know we have incredible extraordinary young men and women, and I just I just see them all over the the globe, and it's it's absolutely amazing uh, whether it's here in D.C. Uh, making sure that we have a safe and secure inauguration and being out there in the cold, in the wet, or being in Afghanistan, or being in Iraq, or being in Syria, or being in, in Korea, or being really around the world, 140 countries. And every day, uh, young men and women continue to do that. So I'm, I'm just incredibly proud to serve with them. We have fabulous Department of Army civilians. Um, we have families that, you know, we, are, we just... You know, when we see what we ask them to do, I just can't thank them enough. And then for the soldiers for life, I, I give them two things out there. Those, the retirees and veterans, I ask them to do two things for us. And only give them two because they're retired. But, you know, usually I give people three things, but I'll give them two. I, I want them to hire and inspire. I want them to hire our veterans when they come out because they're going to get, you know, great workers. And I want them to inspire other young men and women to serve their country and give them an opportunity uh, to do great things in life. And I, I just, I guess share one more thing with this before we leave though. Um, I had a chance to go over, uh, on the Capitol and, and, and meet a great, uh, police officer. Uh, his name was officer Goodman. And some of you might've seen him in the news. Uh, he was one of the ones that saved a whole bunch of people's life and a hero. And it's a great army story. He was in the 101st Airborne Division and he served in combat with the second brigade, the strike brigade in a very difficult time during Iraq. And I, I asked him, you know, why he went in the army, and he grew up uh, kind of fairly tough in D.C., some really tough situations, and the fact that he went and served in the army changed his life, and now he's a hero of the Capitol. So those are the type of people who get in the army, and I'm just real proud to serve with them all. Thank you. General, and in, in, on behalf of our audience, I want to thank you and the great soldiers in the army for all your service in the good times and the bad, and mostly They've been tough times here lately. And so I want to thank the audience for your joining us today. Uh, this, uh, this event will be recorded. It'll be available on heritage.org and on YouTube. Um, if you work on the Hill or a think tank or just have questions, please contact us uh, on the information listed on the screen. And we'd love to continue the conversation. Following this event, you'll get a survey and you'll, I'll hope you'll complete it uh, so that we can make future events even better. And to see the events that we have coming up, check out heritage.org slash events. Again, General McConville, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time today. And everyone else, have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it.